text. We're going to, you can have a seat. We're going to be in Philippians this morning. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to talk about trials and the progress of the gospel. And you may be thinking, like, you know, what do those two things have to do with each other? I hope by the time we're finished that you will uh, understand that. But uh, one of the most famous stories in the history of missions has to do with a group of, of five men, of whom Jim Elliott is probably the best known, going to try to take the gospel to a tribe of savages known as the Alcas in the Ecuadorian jungles. And these five men were, were murdered by this tribe. And probably the reason that, that Jim Elliott is the best known of these men is because of his writings, and there's this famous quote where he said, he who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that, or he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep uh, to gain that which he could never lose. And so, you know, you think, why would these men go and try to take uh, the gospel to these people? But, you know, maybe the craziest part of the story is a few years after they were murdered, uh, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, and the sister of one of the other martyrs, Rachel Saint, and their kids went back to this tribe. And, and, and the end result of it is, uh, you know, many of them got saved, and, you know, there's a thriving Christian community there to this day. But the question I want us to think about is, why would you give that much? Why would you endure that much to go take a message to these evil, savage people. Think about that. So, again, we're, we're talking about two things today that may not seem to fit together. Trials and the progress of the gospel. Now, through COVID, we've talked a lot about trials. I think it's needed. I've wanted to be an encouragement you know, last year kind of even changed uh, some of the preaching plans to try to do some encouraging uh, kind of series. And, you know, people are hurting right now. We need encouragement. We need connection. Uh, I was reminded, I was preaching at BCM at Carson Newman Wednesday night. And about 80% of the way through the message, I just felt, and I think it was a Holy Spirit thing, just this sense that there is just a lot of pain in this room and just felt a lot of compassion. And, and, and I think that's just kind of a microcosm of the world right now, although I think that generation is particularly hurting. I think that's one of the reasons why, and I know there's some risk, that churches need to do everything they can to be open right now because people need connection. People need encouragement. People need the gospel. I think if we're honest, though, we're all probably struggling on some level. Life feels extremely uncertain right now. That makes it hard to relax. Now, life's always uncertain. I think the time in which we live just makes us more aware of it. Um, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of fear. I think a lot of the things that people are doing right now are really fear-based. You know, when, when people, uh, you know... And there's people this way on opposite ends of about everything. But when, when people are just like absolutely dead set certain about things that are really uncertain, 
I think in a lot of cases that's fear-based. And it gives people a feeling of security if they feel certain about something. I mean, how can you be certain about COVID? I mean, I don't care which end of the spectrum you're on. I mean, I've been trying to lead stuff through COVID for 18 months, and I got about two opinions on COVID, and the rest I'm confused about. I mean, I think if, if you're certain, it makes you feel better, it makes you feel secure, even if there's really not a lot to be certain about. You know, people look for scapegoats, enemies, somebody to blame it on. Because it makes you feel a little more secure if you can find somebody that it's their fault, whether it's their fault or not. There's a lot of turning to unhealthy coping mechanisms. A lot of times, I think we're just kind of trying to make it through the day. And you may be here like, yeah, what are you talking about mission for? Just help me cope with life. But I want us to think about this. I read an article a few days ago. It's a great title. All these simultaneous disasters are messing with our brains. Does that sound about right? Well, I want to read a couple paragraphs of it. It says, the earthquakes and wildfires and wars keep piling up. When does our empathy run out? Last week, the psychologist Stephen Taylor was at a get-together with some relatives and their friends when the conversation turned to the chaos in Afghanistan. Someone mentioned the sickening footage of desperate Afghans clinging to American military aircraft as they departed. Then one man made a remark that caught Taylor off guard. The videos, he said, were funny. And others agreed. Taylor was appalled. It was one of the most disturbing things he had heard all week. Worse, he doesn't think it was an isolated instance of casual sadism. He studies disaster psychology at the University of British Columbia, and he knows how intense, sustained stress can desensitize the mind. What most concerned him about the incident was what is suggested about the pandemic's effects on our experience of other disasters, and more broadly, our ability or inability to empathize. And he says this, maybe you can relate, people are just burned out. They've had enough atrocity and stress for the time being, and they just don't want to hear any more of that. He doesn't think the people he encountered last week are unique. My concern, he said, is that many people are just tuning this stuff out. If that's the case, if fatigue is in fact swamping empathy, it would be a darkly ironic outcome. Disaster uh, disaster leaves survivors more vulnerable than ever to trauma. The onlookers, though, less willing than ever to help. That's not a good combination. It is certainly not the combination that God wants from his church. So yeah, trials are real. We're hurting, we're struggling. But we also need to talk about the progress of the gospel. And of course, we've talked about that a lot through COVID as well. We've talked about who's your one, who are you witnessing to. You know, we have Steve Payson, an evangelist, coming in the last Sunday of the month. I'd encourage you to invite people who aren't believers yet you know, to that. That's his gift. One of our men this week texted me that he'd been able to lead a couple of people to Christ. That's exciting. 
Now, there, were a couple, uh, there were 22 professions of faith in our ministry in Uganda this past month. That's exciting. God is doing things in the midst of all of this. It's needed now more than ever. I mean, he's saving people here. We're doing baptisms on the 19th if you need to get baptized and, and obey the Lord in, in that. And so God is working in the midst of, God is working through trials. I believe God's about to do more and more. I don't know if that necessarily means things in the world are going to be getting better and better. I I think they're probably going to get worse and worse. But you know, the thing about it is, with some of the things I talked about before, stress, anxiety, fear, anger, division, burnout, lack of empathy, you know, the solution to those things are spiritual. The solution's spiritual. They're real problems, but the solution is found in Christ. So, again, we're talking about two things that maybe don't seem to fit together. We may be focused on trials. God, though, is also focused on the progress of the gospel. And so the question that I want us to try to answer in this text this morning is how do trials and the progress of the gospel fit together? How do they work together? Because I think that's what Paul is addressing in these verses. So here's what he says in Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. He says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me, which he's talking about the fact that he's imprisoned, and he's talking about uh, the false accusation and the uh, defenses and the going through from Roman leader to Roman leader, ending up in Rome, all these things. That's what's happened to him. But he says these things have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it has become evident to the whole palace guard, the whole praetorium, and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? In other words, kind of what's the summation of all this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. And remember, rejoicing is a choice. That's part of the implication here. But this this is the big idea, I think, of this passage. And this is what I want to try to develop for us today. And and, and there's a couple of specifics that I want to delve into, and then I want to close with three application questions, three decisions that I think we need to wrestle with. But, but this is the big idea, I think. God's plan is the progress of the gospel, his name being glorified through that. And trials are a means, one of the means that he uses to accomplish that end. I think that's what Paul's saying here. God's plan is the progress of the gospel. And, and, and these trials that Paul was going through, Things that are happening in the world today, trials that we experience in our lives, aren't just accidental. They're not just obstacles. They're not just random difficulties. 
they're actually part of the sovereign plan of God to accomplish his, his eternal purpose of people from every tribe and tongue and nation being saved and worshiping Jesus around his throne. This is part of what he's doing in the world. So, look first that I want you to see that it was God's will for Paul to go through these trials in order to advance the gospel. And what's true of Paul is true of us. Okay? If, if you look in verse 12, he says, The things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the fur- furtherance or the advance or the progress of the gospel. And then in verse 17, he said, he used this word, he said, I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now, let me explain these couple of things because it's very important to understanding this passage. So, the Greek word that's translated appointed in verse 17, John MacArthur says it describes a soldier being placed on duty. In other words, like... um, like Josh was a Marine, and you know, he, he wasn't really given a choice where he served, what he did, right? You were told, this is your duty, this is your responsibility, go do it. It, it, was, it wasn't accidental, it was determined. So what he's saying here is it, it was determined that he defend the gospel. Well, what's he, what's he talking about, the defense of the gospel? Well, remember when he was falsely accused and arrested in, in Jerusalem, Acts 21? What did he do with the crowd? He shared the gospel. And as he went through from Roman leader to Roman leader, he shared the gospel. These are opportunities that he would not have without these trials. He ended up in Rome, which was his goal, sharing the gospel through the trials that got him there. MacArthur goes on to say, Paul was in prison because he was destined to be there by God's will in order to be in strategic position to proclaim the gospel. Remember what God said to Ananias when he told him to go minister to Paul after Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. These trials, these sufferings, were ordained by God as part of God's plan for the Apostle Paul for him in spreading the gospel. Are we better than him? Are we more special than him that we would be exempt from that? You see, Paul is going to go on to say at the end of chapter 1 that it's given to us not only to believe the gospel, but to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Don't hear that in too many gospel presentations, do you? Remember that Jesus told us to count the cost. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Now, going back to to chapter 12, the word that New King James is translated furtherance, or in some translations is translated progress, MacArthur says it refers to the forward movement of something 
often of armies in spite of obstacles, dangers, and distractions. Paul's imprisonment proved to be no hindrance to spreading the message of salvation. Actually, it created new opportunities. Now, I was having a conversation with somebody this week, and she was talking about how overwhelming that life can feel some days. And you probably feel that some days. I feel that some days. But, but she said to me, but you know, you're usually positive, and I hope that I am. But if there's any reason I'm positive, it's because I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God's in control of the good and the bad, and he's working all things together for our good. And honestly, I don't know how you cope with life apart from that. But that does mean that we need to take the good with the bad. That life is going to be hard sometimes. It's supposed to be that way in a fallen world. Remember when it's good, that's grace. We deserve the bad. We deserve to be in hell. But God is in control. Let me share an example from that again from missions history. One of the most famous missionaries in the world is Adoniram Judson. He's often called the first foreign missionary from America, although that's not factually correct. But he went to Burma in 1812, and he stayed there. I think he came home maybe one time, but he stayed there until his death in 1850. Um, he, He was a congregational minister. That was his denomination, except when he was sailing over there, he became a Baptist. He, he, he got baptized by immersion on the way there. But while he was there in those 38 years, he suffered greatly for the cause of the gospel. At one point, he was literally imprisoned, tortured, and shackled for several months. Maybe it was over a year. I don't remember the exact time frame. His first wife, Anne, died on the mission field. He remarried. His second wife died on the mission field. He remarried again. She outlived him. But some of their children died while he was on the mission field. After Anne, his first wife, died, he was so depressed that he left his house, like went out and lived in the jungle by himself for a while, would every day just go sit beside her tomb And after that experience, he wrote this. He said, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. But eventually, you know, he he pulled out of that. His faith sustained him. And, you know, he threw himself back into the task that God had given uh, him. In 1834, he completed the translation of Scripture into their language. Again, he died in 1850. And when he died, the statistics are a little bit unclear, but it's thought that when he died, after these 38 years, there were somewhere between about a dozen and two dozen professing Christians there in Burma. But fast forward ahead to the 1980s, the 150th anniversary of the translation of the Bible into the the, the Burmese language, and they were having a a celebration, Uh, you know, a group was celebrating his work. 
And a man by the name of Paul Borthwick was going to speak to them. And just before he got up to speak, he noticed in, in small print on the first page the words, translated by Reverend A. Judson. So he turned to his interpreter and said, Matthew, what do you know of this man? And Matthew began to weep as he said, We know him. We know how he loved the Burmese people, how he suffered for the gospel because of us, out of love for us. He died a pauper but left the Bible for us. When he died, there were few believers. But today, there are over 600,000 of us, and every one of us traces our spiritual heritage to him. John Piper says of this, Our Lord Jesus said to us in very solemn words, John 12, 24, and 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. In other words, Piper says, a fruitful life and eternal life comes from this. Dying like a seed and hating your life in this world. What overwhelms me as I pondered this and traced the life of Adoniram Judson is how strategic it was that he died so many times and in so many ways. More and more, I am persuaded from Scripture and from the history of missions that God's design for the evangelization of the world and the consummation of his purposes includes the suffering of his ministers and missionaries. To put it more plainly and specifically, God designs that the suffering of his ministers and missionaries is one essential means in the joyful, triumphant spread of the gospel among all the peoples of the world. Is he worthy? Now, I'll be honest with you. That's a little hard for me. I think it's probably a little hard for most of us. I don't think it's hard for a lot of the church around the world. I mean, if, if you could find some believers in Afghanistan today gathering in some home church in secret somewhere, they're not going to have any argument with those words. But to me, in my logical brain, it's like, well, couldn't Paul have gotten more done if he wasn't in jail? You know, couldn't, and he had the same question, couldn't Adoniram Judson have gotten more done if he wasn't imprisoned, if he wasn't grieving his wife? God, why wouldn't you have protected him? Of course, we have the American mindset that God exists to make us comfortable and happy, which is not exactly what you find on the pages of the New Testament. You know, I, I thought at different times through COVID, you know, it especially seemed like, you know, have momentum and then there's another wave and it's like, you know, God, why? I mean, you know, we could get a whole lot more done if it wasn't uh, you know, because it kind of feels like we're operating, if you remember, car, cars back in the day that had governors on them. That, that's kind of what it feels like that we're operating under. But then some of those times, God's reminded me of, well, what about the people that are getting saved at True Life? And in Honduras, 
in Uganda? What about starting BTCPs through this and starting new training centers in Honduras and paying off the debt on the building? And I can go on and on and on. And it's kind of like God saying, I, I, I got this. I can handle this. I'll get done what I want to get done. I'll use trials. I'll use whatever I want to use. Do we believe he's sovereign? I mean, Adoniram Judson did. In fact, uh, he, uh, Piper says of this that uh, it was deep confidence in God's overarching providence through all the calamity and misery that sustained him to the end. Judson said, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. And all three of his wives believed the same thing. Do we really believe that God is in control and that his will is being done in our lives, whether it's easy or it's hard, and the ultimate purpose of that will is that he be glorified and the gospel be spread? Listen, we struggle with difficulties a lot of times because we're at cross-purposes with God. God's purpose is his glory through the evangelization of the nations. Our purpose is my comfort. And I think we just need to be real about that. Because to be honest about it is the first step in dealing with it. Second, I want us to see here that God used Paul's trials to give contact with the lost and courage to the saved. In verse 13, he said, It's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. In other words, even the unbelievers could see he wasn't in prison because he was a criminal. He was in prison because of Jesus. And you see, the way that Paul used this, I mean, to me this sounds awful. You know, all these rotating guards there all the time. But for Paul, it was like fresh meat. Somebody else that I can witness to. Somebody else that I can preach to. Because he wasn't sitting around having a pity party because his circumstances weren't exactly what he wanted them to be. His priority was God's priority. The progress of the gospel. The glory of his name. The salvation of souls. And... What I know is, if, if I'm honest and will admit this, is that all the trials I've gone through, God has used them for the progress of the gospel. He's used them to sanctify me. He's used them to open doors of ministry with other people. He works that way. You know, maybe martyrs are the ex ultimate example of this. If you study... Christian history from the very beginning until now, you'll find that many people have come to faith in Christ through seeing someone die without renouncing their faith in Christ. Paul, with the first martyr, Stephen. People around the world today, people in between. Here's an example. History knows them as the 40 martyrs of Sebast. They were soldiers in the famed 12th legion of Rome's imperial army around 320 A.D. Emperor Licinius sent down an edict commanding all soldiers to offer a sacrifice to his pagan god. But 40 of the soldiers in this unit were Christians, and they refused. And they said, you can have our armor, you can even have our bodies, but our heart's allegiance belongs to Jesus. 
So the emperor decided to make an example of the soldiers. It was the middle of winter. He marched them onto a frozen lake. The soldiers stripped them of their clothes and said, Renounce your God and you will be spared from death. But nobody moved. And they spent the entire night there huddled together on that frozen lake for part of the night at least uh, singing hymns until at some point uh, the, the coldness overcame them and 39 of the 40 froze to death. The next morning, the 40th crawled off the ice, renounced his faith so he could live. But the captain of the guard who was watching them that night, during the night as he saw their faith, had committed his life to Jesus. And so he took the place of the 40th. He voluntarily walked out on the ice with those 39 corpses, took off his clothes, and stayed there until he, too, froze to death. And uh, so when it was over, still carried off 40 men who had frozen to death. That man came to faith in Christ through seeing the witness of those 39 men to death. And that's happened all around the world. Trials give us contact with the lost, but they give courage to the saved. I don't know about you, but when I read about the persecuted church, it convicts me of my softness, of my wimpiness. It it challenges me, it encourages me to be more bold in sharing the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here is happening through his trials. God's purpose is the advancement of the gospel. His means is trials. What are we going to do? Well, I think, based on this text, there's three decisions we need to make. So I want to ask us three questions based on these verses. Number one, will our priority be personal comfort or to proclaim Jesus? Will our priority be personal comfort or to proclaim Jesus? Again, in verse 12, he talks about the things that have happened to me, but he said they've turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, I've had these problems, I've had these trials, but what's most important to me is the proclamation of Jesus, that that he's being proclaimed. Now, what all did Paul go through? Well, he lists... At different times in the New Testament. Here's one example of those lists. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, starting in verse 23. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, and labors more abundant, and stripes above measure, and prisons more frequently, and deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 39 stripes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was uh, stoned. Um, three times I was shipwrecked. At night and day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all uh, the churches. And really what Paul was doing in the context of 2 Corinthians, they were challenging his ministry. They were challenging his apostleship. He's saying, my scars are the proof of my apostleship. 
What's our priority? Do we believe Jesus is worthy of our time, our service, our sacrifice, our generosity? What will we give for the gospel to advance? Will we inconvenience ourselves? Will we go to the hard places? Will we do hard things? Will we even walk across the street for the sake of the gospel? Will we risk persecution? Will we risk ostracism? Will you be the student in your school who stands out and stands up and, and for the name of Jesus Christ? Will you be the person in your work, in your community, in, in, in your family? Is Jesus worthy? What's our priority? Me getting everything I want or seeing people meet him? Number two, will our motive be selfish ambition or love? Will our motive be selfish ambition or love? You know, God's interested in our motives. Let's be real. All of us have mixed motives, even in our most spiritual moments. We have to search our hearts. And how much is it about me? You know, that, that's one of the things you can pray for, uh, you know, for me, is that my focus would be on the glory of God, the exaltation of Christ, and, and, and not on me. I, I think what does a lot of pastors in is, I mean, I, I think they're real, and God blesses them, God uses them, but then as it gets big, it goes to their head, and it becomes about them instead of Jesus. I, I think that's the root for a lot of pastors who, who have fallen. But you know, the thing about it is this. If you're in it, if you're serving Jesus for the wrong reasons, trials will probably weed you out. But if it's really about him and not us, if it's really about his glory, and we may struggle, we may hurt. I mean, obviously, Adonai and Johnson, you know, he almost lost his faith through all that. But if it's about Jesus... We're going to keep going. You know, he says here, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambitions, not sincerely supposing to add afflictions to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Richard Melick points out correctly, I think, that you know, these people had the right message, they had the right method. The problem was their motive. They were preaching Jesus, but they were preaching against Paul. So Paul says, uh, you know, if they've been preaching the wrong message, he would have called them out as heretics. But he's like, I don't really care if they're against me. I don't really care if they got the wrong motive. If Jesus is being proclaimed, even if it's for, if it's for the wrong reason, I'm going to rejoice in that because it's not about me. But all of us, me most certainly included, have to fight against the disease of me in our lives. But then one more question from verse 18, another decision we have to make. And that is, will our joy be based on our circumstances or will our joy be based on Jesus being proclaimed? Will our joy be based on our circumstances or on Jesus being proclaimed. You know, he sums it up by saying, that it says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that Christ is preached, 
And in this, I rejoice and I will rejoice. So Paul says, it doesn't matter about my circumstances. It doesn't matter about how these people are treating me. If Jesus is being proclaimed, I'm going to choose to rejoice in that. You say, ah, that, I don't know, that didn't even seem right, you know, not fair how he's being treated. That's true. But can I just remind us of this? Let's go back to trials for a minute. If your joy is based on your circumstances, how are you ever going to have joy when circumstances are bad and circumstances are often bad? That's one of the main themes of Philippians. I mean, if, if our joy, our happiness, our peace, whatever words you want to put in there, is based on our circumstances, you know what that means? That means that something or someone is always going to be in control of our lives. Listen, if our joy is in something transcendent, something eternal, if it's in Jesus, if it's in fulfilling his mission, that's beyond us, that's above us, that's outside of us, and that doesn't depend on what's going on around us or what people are doing or what so-and-so thinks about us. That's something that can be solid. You know, does our joy depend on how life's going? Does it depend on the success of our ministry? Does it depend on what people think about us? And so, I think what God's Spirit, as He inspired Paul, is saying to us through this passage is to think differently about trials, to see that God is in control. And yeah, in a fallen world, there's going to be trials. But, but, but that's not something random or accidental. That is under the sovereign control of our God. There's nothing that happens in our lives that doesn't filter uh, through him. And ultimately, those trials are for the purpose of the progress of the gospel, that people would be saved and that God would be glorified. So are we going to fight against our trials? Are we going to trust God and surrender to him and have his priority and his motives and find joy in him and do what he's called us to do to make a difference in the world instead of just sitting around complaining and wringing our hands about what's, what's happening to us and what's going on around us. Listen, we can't snap our fingers and just make everything good. And tweeting about it or posting about it on Facebook or Instagram is not going to fix things. But we can make a difference in people's lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can find joy in that, that it transcends us just looking inward and uh, thinking about all the time what we have or what we don't have. Again, what's our priority going to be? What's our motive going to be? And where's our joy going to come from? Let me close with this, and it's another story from missions. I think it's an amazing story. It'll take a few minutes. Some of it I'm going to read. Some of it I'm going to paraphrase. But it comes from a lady by the name of Aggie Hurst in a book that she wrote about her life and about her family. 
Her parents were named David and Sevilla Flood. And back in 1921, they moved from Sweden with a two-year-old boy to uh, the, the Belgian Congo, is what it was known as then, to be missionaries. And they met up with another young couple named the Ericsons, and they began to pray and to seek God about what God was calling them to do. And, and they decided, instead of just staying at the mission station that had already been established, to move to a more remote area to try to take the gospel to a village there. But when they went there, they were rejected by the chief. He wouldn't let them enter because of the fear of uh, alienating their local gods. So they couldn't live in the village, but they felt called by God to be there. So they built their own little mud huts about half a mile away. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but none came. In fact, the village chief wouldn't let anybody have contact with them except one little boy that he would let go out there once a week to sell them chickens and eggs. And so, Savea Flood thought, well, I've only got one African that I can talk to, but I'm at least going to talk to him. And eventually, she led this little boy to Christ, but that was the only visible fruit of their labors. They were having lots of problems. They kept getting sick, having bouts of malaria. And eventually the Ericsons decided they had had enough and they went back. The floods chose to keep trying. Well, at some point in that process, Savea got pregnant and gave birth to a little girl they named Ina. But unfortunately, she died 17 days after that. And when she died, something snapped inside of her husband, David. He dug a crew grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and then took the children back down the mountain to, to the mission statement. He found the Ericsons there. He, he gave them his newborn daughter and said, quote, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife. I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed home, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. So the Ericsons took the baby, but within eight months, they were stricken with some mysterious malady and died within a few days of each other. At that point, an American missionary couple took Ana, renamed her Aggie, moved back to the United States, and raised her. Eventually, she married a man by the name of Dewey Hurst, who was also a minister. They had kids. Uh, eventually, he became the president of a Christian college in the Seattle area, which apparently has a lot of Scandinavian heritage there. One day, for some unknown reason, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She couldn't read the words, but she thumbed through it, and on one of the pages, she saw something that just arrested her attention. There was a picture of a crude grave in a remote area with a little white cross 
with the name of her mother, Savea Flood, on it. So she found a professor who could speak Swedish and had him uh, you know, read this to her. And, and, and basically uh, what he told her was, you know, the, the, the story of how she'd been born, her mother dying, the, the one little African boy had been led to Christ, how the white people had, had left. But the little boy had grown up and persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. And in that school, he gradually won all of his students to Christ. And those students won their parents to Christ. Even the chief had become a Christian. At that point in the 1980s, there were 600 Christian believers in that one village because of the sacrifice of David and Savea Flood. On the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college gave them a gift of a trip to Sweden. While they were there, Aggie Hearst sought out her real father, David Flood. He was 73 now. He had remarried, fathered four more children, and ruined his life with alcoholism. He had recently suffered a stroke and would actually die a few weeks later. He was still bitter. In fact, he only had one rule for his family, which was, never mention the name of God in my presence. So, after an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and and half-sister, she said she wanted to go see her father. They said, you can, but just never bring up the name of God around him. She was undeterred, and she went to meet him. And said she walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere. She approached him and said, Papa. And he turned and began to cry and said her name and said, I never meant to give you away. She said, it's all right, Papa. God took care of me. He stiffened and said, God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. And she said, Papa, I've got a little story to tell you and it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today, there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He's never hated you. And as they talked for the rest of the day, eventually, David Flood, a few weeks before he died, that day recommitted his life to the God that he had rejected, who thought had abandoned him all those years ago. But he wasted his life, because he, it, it, the rest of his life, because he thought God had abandoned him. So, you know, she went back to America. They kept serving the Lord. And a few years later, they were attending an evangelism conference in London, England, where a report was given from Zaire, which used to be the Belgian Congo where she was born. And the man giving the report, the superintendent of the national church, talked about the spread of the gospel in that nation and said there were now 110,000 baptized believers in that nation. When he finished, she couldn't help but go and ask him, 
If he had ever heard of David and Savea Flood. And he said to her in French, and it was translated to her in English, Yes, madam, it was Savea Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. Eventually, they were able to go to Zaire and visit her mother's grave. They received a hero's welcome. She knelt at her mother's grave and was able to pray and thank God. And she said, later that day in the church, the pastor read from John 12, 24. Remember it from earlier? I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Listen, God is not wasting our trials. If we'll die to ourselves and surrender to him and put ourselves in his hands and trust him and follow him and obey him, no matter what comes, our lives will count for now and for eternity. Listen, God is doing things that we can't see. He's in control. God is making things happen that we won't know about until we get to heaven. But God always fulfills his word. I believe every faithful Christian is going to get to heaven and they're going to see fruit from their lives that they had no idea of. Listen, it's always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to give up. Jesus has won the victory. He's on his throne. We belong to him. And if we'll live like we belong to him, if we'll trust him and serve him and be faithful to him because he's worthy, he'll use our lives. Our lives won't be wasted. They'll count for now and forever. So what do we believe? And what are we going to do with our lives? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of you committing yourself to him right now? You trusting him and surrendering to him by faith and receiving him as the Lord and Savior of your life? Is he worthy of you going public with your faith and being baptized to confess your faith in him? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of whatever it is he's calling you to do? Is he worthy of our giving and our sacrifice and our selflessness and serving others and sharing the gospel with others? What's our priority? What's our motive? Where's our joy? Are we trying to find it in Jesus or in something else? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.